church. It's just a copy of our doctrinal statement, and then the Apostle Creed is, is on the backside. And it's New Year. We're just going to take some time to go through some foundational stuff. So if you don't have one, please, uh, please grab one of those or maybe pass one out to your neighbor, or maybe if you like your neighbor, you can, you can share. Um, but um, please grab one of those if, uh, if you don't have one already. Did everybody get a chance to, to grab one? All right. Let's, um, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into some stuff. Father God, my heart goes out to... Um, our friends over in, in Boulder County that um, lots of houses that are gone, lots of people that are here on this freezing cold morning in the snow and they don't have a home. Their home was destroyed by fire. Our brothers and sisters are suffering, Lord. We lift them up to you. They seem far away. They seem remote from us. But if there's some way that we can help them, please give us the heart, give us the resources to, to help them out. I can't imagine starting off 2022 without a home, and yet there's a lot of families that are starting off just that way. So, Lord, we lift them up to you this morning. We are thankful for the moisture. We're thankful for the snow. We're thankful that we seem to be catching up from the drought. Lord, we just ask that that continues, that we would have the water that we need for the upcoming spring. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for your word that we have open in front of us. We just ask that you come near, that you be with us, that you bless this time that we have together, that you would open your heart and open your mind and open your wisdom to us. And we ask all of that in the great teacher, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we, like I said, we printed off, this is a copy of our, our doctrinal statement for the church. I just want to go over it briefly. It's first Sunday of the new year. It's a good opportunity to get back to our foundations. We're going to jump into to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 here in a moment. But it's always a good idea to, to get back to the beginning. How many of you guys have ever read this before? Awesome. That's great. Well, I, you know, we, we normally, when we do uh, one of our... our, our uh, uh, foundations of the faith classes was where we, we normally cover this stuff, and it's been a while since we've, we've had one of those classes, so I thought it would be a good idea just to, to drag it out, and we can go through this real quick, like, to go through these foundational statements of belief, and like I say, it's just a, as we start off the new year, to ground ourselves, to be able to, to walk around the house, to check the foundation, to, to make sure that everything is solid and sound as we move forward. And that way, you know, we, we're here, we gather as a church, we call ourselves a church. We know that hopefully we're on the same page. And if we're not on the same page, we can have a conversation about, you know, those, those things that we're not on the same page about. But this has uh, been with us for a long time. Art wrote this, um, gosh, I, you know, before we were even in this building. 
and it started us off, and uh, I think it still holds true today. So we'll start at the very beginning. I want to say this is just a you know, doctrinal statement, what we believe, what is the foundation of the church, what we believe about God. We believe that God is the creator and ruler of the universe, that he eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are co-equal and are one God. And there's a list of passages. If you have any questions about where we get that from, that's right there. About people. People are made in the spiritual image of God to be like him in character. People are the supreme object of God's creation. Although we have a tremendous potential for good, we are marred by an attitude of disobedience toward God called sin. This attitude separates us from God. About eternity. People are created to exist forever. We will either exist eternally separated from God by sin or in union with God through forgiveness and salvation. To be eternally separated from God is hell. To be eternally in union with him is eternal life. Heaven and hell are places of eternal existence. About Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. Jesus lived a sinless human life and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all by dying on a cross. He arose from the dead after three days to demonstrate his power over sin and death. He ascended to heaven's glory and will return again to earth to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Salvation is a gift from God to mankind. We can never make up for our sin by self-improvement or good works. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's offer of forgiveness can we be saved from sin's penalty. Eternal life begins the moment each individual receives Jesus Christ into their life by faith. Because God gives us eternal life through Jesus Christ, the believer is secure in salvation for eternity. Salvation is maintained by the grace and power of God, not by the self-effort of the Christian. It is the grace and keeping power of God that gives us this security. The Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son as God. He is present in the world to make us aware of our need for Jesus Christ. He also lives in every Christian from the moment of salvation. He provides the Christian with power for living, understanding of spiritual truth, and guidance in doing what is right. The Christian seeks to live under his control daily. The Bible is God's word to all. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it is inspired by God, it is truth without any mixture of error. And because we believe, we follow. Amen? All right, so if you want to join me in saying the Apostles' Creed on the other side, this is just a statement of belief of those things that we just went through. Everybody got it? it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If there's anything about those that stick in your craw, please feel free to grab me after service and we can, we can have a conversation about them. I say those are foundational. Those are things that we put at the very bottom, right? Jesus is the cornerstone and then we build from there. Another picture, right, is, it is our pegboard, our pegboard of what we believe. And we should be able to, to drive our pegs in and tie all of them together. They should form a coherent version of our, of our faith. And as we live our lives, as we build our faith, we should be able to have a good, coherent picture of what we're doing. And, and as we dig deeper, and our verse for today, we're going to be in John chapter 11. We're in verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 16. And this, this is an amazing passage. Here in John chapter 11, and this is a great place to start with the new year, because this chapter is one where we really get a chance to see and know God. We get to hear from God. We get to hear some wonderful details about what God thinks and what God feels, what Jesus thinks and what Jesus feels, both in humanity and in his divine person. This is a, a miracle. It's the raising of Lazarus. Most of us have, have read this, have heard this, but in this, there's some wonderful details, and that's really where we, want, where we want to take our time is in the details, because in those details, we get to have an intimate picture of the Father, an intimate picture of the Son. There's this magnificent display of God's power. It's a magnificent display of His sovereignty. So we're going to take our time. It's probably going to be you know, three or four um, messages that will encompass the John chapter 11. It's pretty slow, but we want to take our time to go through this. John is the only one who records this miracle. It's only found in the Gospel of John. My personal opinion is just me. You don't have to you know, drive a peg anywhere. You can kick it down the road as far as you want to. But my opinion is that, that John wrote this later, that the other Gospel writers did not include it to protect Lazarus. We'll see at the end of the, the chapter, Lazarus actually gets dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. He actually gets questioned. And I think they didn't include it in the other Gospels to protect him. That's my opinion, my opinion only. Like I say, you can, you can take it or leave it. But again, John is the only one who records this. So who here would like to get to know God better? I know I would, right? So this wonderful chapter is a great place where we can do that. Like I said, it's a display of God's character, a display of Jesus, both God character and Jesus man character. And it is the last of the signs, the last of the miracles that John records. And I, I'm going to put a little asterisk on that because there's one more miracle that, that's recorded. And that's when, when Peter chops off Malchus's ear and, and then Jesus glues it back on. But that one happens at night. There's quite a few witnesses. The Roman, uh, the, there's about 100 Roman soldiers that are there, but it happens in the day. This miracle, or that one happens at night. This one happens during the day. There are hundreds of witnesses, at least, that witness this resurrection. And we know John's purpose. We know the purpose of this gospel. We know the reason why John wrote this down. We can review it. We've said it several times, but it's in John 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why John recorded this? 
So we need to keep that in the back of our minds as we charge through this, that we get this wonderful intimate picture, that we get this wonderful intimate view, and that it has a purpose. And there's an evangelical purpose, and there's also sort of a doctrinal purpose, that we get to see those things about God, we get to see things about Jesus, and it should lead us somewhere. It should lead us to belief. It should believe us to eternal life. Chapter 11 is a shift in John's gospel. If we were to go back, the last time we were, the last few times what we've gotten is we've gotten sort of a miracle or a sign followed by a teaching, and those teachings have focused on unbelief. There's a similar pattern here, but this is much more a straight narrative. It's much more a straight story told. And it takes the entire chapter of John 11, and it is a long chapter. It's 57 verses. And again, most of us know the general story of the raising of Lazarus. But John is very detailed, and we will take time to revel in those details. It is also here in John chapter 11 where we find the shortest verse in the Bible. It's John 11:35. Jesus wept. Here is a place where we see what John and the other disciples got to live with for three and a half years or so. Here, the deity and the humanity of Jesus is proclaimed. And this is an opportunity to get to know Jesus more intimately. We want to pay some special attention to some things. There's going to be some expressions of grief, expressions of sorrow, and expressions of love. We're going to see Jesus' judgment. We're going to see his sovereignty. We're going to see his power, his authority, his grace, his love, and his mercy. All of them are in the portrait that John paints in chapter 11. I'm going to take a a pause here. We're going to step off to the side because in our culture, I don't know if you guys, anybody go see Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man? Yeah. I know there's one. I haven't seen it yet either. But it's it's the best-selling movie in the country right now. And all of the best-selling movies of all time. It used to be Home Alone was right up there, but it's not. It's been playing a bump down, thanks to Marvel. But all of them are fantasy films. The special effects are amazing. We can go and see a young man in a suit swinging from webs, stopping speeding trains, fighting villains made of sand, made of electricity, villains with mechanical arms. We don't have to imagine anymore. We can go see it. We can watch wizards cast spells and fight dragons. The question we have to ask is what value does that add? It is an escape from reality for sure. And it used to be that these tales were tales of virtue. I uh, talked to my kids quite a bit about the the old Superman, the way that the Superman was when he was originally written. And it's hard because the new Superman movies, they always have to come up with some new, bigger, bad guy because Superman's Superman. And so they always have to find some way to to weaken him or to threaten him. But the old comics were not like that. The old comics, they were titled Superman, but Superman was only in usually the last page of the comics. It was Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen. They were the, the primary of the story. Lois would hear about a story. Someone would be victimized. She would go and investigate. She was a tenacious investigative reporter. She would go out and and be digging and clawing, and sure enough, she and Jimmy would end up caught by the bad guys in some 
horrible place. You know, they, they'd have found it. They'd have gotten the evidence. And there would be no way for them to escape. They would be trapped by these evil people. And then Superman would show up. And he would be able to do what no one else could do. He could rescue them from that situation. His super strength, his freeze breath, or his laser vision, he would free Lois and Jimmy, and in the end, the bad guys would lose and justice would prevail. But we yearn for the supernatural. We yearn for it. We can feel it, but it's just out of reach. We yearn for justice. We see the evil in the world, and we feel powerless. We want truth. We want goodness and mercy and forgiveness to reign. When we are attacked or trapped or helpless, we cry out for deliverance. So what value does fiction add? When it's tales of virtue, when it's things that make us think about the greater good, it's pretty good, right? But the other thing that it can do is that when we hear about a man being raised from the dead, when we're so saturated with these things, it can lessen the impact of this miracle. So one of the things we have to do today is we have to be able to strip those things away from ourselves. We have to unsaturate ourselves to look at this with fresh eyes. Because this is a true story. This is a real place. These are real people. This is a real account with thousands of witnesses. And a man was raised from the dead. He was in the tomb for four days and he walked out. We have to feel the impact of that. That is nothing like anything we have ever experienced in our lives. It is unique to this. And it should rock us to the core. God is real. Jesus is real. This is not a fairy tale. It is not fiction. It is not fantasy. Jesus really cured a blind man. Jesus really healed several paralyzed people. Jesus really healed lepers. Jesus really created bread and fish from nothing. We can't be so blinded by special effects and movie magic that we forget what is real. This account should anchor us. It should be one of the tent stakes of our faith. We just reviewed our, our foundation, our beliefs. So it's time. It's time to pull our faith out of the garage, to change the oil, to charge the battery, to fill up the tank, to give it a wash and wax. It is time to drive. Because your faith is not just for you. Your faith and you have a purpose. So when we think about God, when we think about Jesus, when we think about our faith, we should remember Lazarus. And this is a true account of the undeniable hand of God touching earth. Now, as a note, the Bible is full of all kinds of writing. It has narrative, it has parable or story, it has allegory, it has poetry, it has rhythm and rhyme and pentameter. You know what it doesn't have? Not a single stitch of? Myth or fantasy? Not one. When Jesus tells a parable, which is a story, it is a fiction, but it's designed to illustrate a point or to teach a lesson, he always uses people people in realistic places with realistic jobs doing realistic things. 
I pulled up an example in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You can go through it on your own time, but it's just an example. These are workers. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. We can all realize that. We can drive up onto, onto the Redlands and we can see a vineyard. We can see people working out in those fields. We can understand what a vineyard is and who the workers are. So when we approach this text, as we approach the new year, let's be intentional about focusing on what is real, what is true, learning more about Jesus and getting to know Jesus. So with that in our hearts, let's go to, uh, to verse one. Let's read our, our verse. I go back up to the top. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So let's start off with, with verse 1. It talks about Bethany. And it says Lazarus was sick. And we don't know what, what his illness was. And it, we can speculate or not. Um, you know, if you have to speculate, you can put whatever ailment maybe you fear most into him. Was it cancer? Was it pneumonia? We, we really don't know. You know something absolutely fascinating? The Bible is full of all kinds of things, all kinds of practical things. If you want to go read through Deuteronomy, go read through Leviticus, there's some very real practical instructions. You know what's not there? Medicines. It's odd. They had tons of remedies. They had tons of things in there. There's one. There's a poultice made of figs. We still use it today. It's almost like the Holy Spirit edited that out because it knew that we would have advances in medical technology. It's crazy. So, Lazarus was sick. It says they were in Bethany. It also says that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived together. Ironically, Jesus was staying in another Bethany. Verse 40 tells us that Jesus was in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist had done some of his preaching. And he is having great success. If we were to flip back one page, if we go to John 10, it says that many had come to believe. 
when we talk about this, we don't exactly know where this Bethany is. We, we, we know it's a suburb of Jerusalem, but we don't have archaeological evidence that, that nails this down. But one of the problems is that there's multiple places called Bethany. So when we find an artifact that's labeled Bethany, we're like, well, which one is it? Because there's one here, there's one there. It would be a lot better if people wouldn't name places and people the exact same names. Sorry, sons. But the name means house of the poor or house of poverty. If we want comparisons, think about Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethel, house of God, Bethany, which is house of poverty or house of the poor. It's funny, you know, the, the law required care for the poor. No one should have been poor in poverty in Israel because everyone had a lineage, a tribe they belonged to. Therefore, they had land, they had an inheritance. And every seven years, debts had to be canceled and land had to be returned to the families. Even foreigners, even aliens could buy land and could prosper. But if you were poor, if you were in poverty, you could walk along the fields and and glean them or go to the synagogue or the temple and there would be food. And if you declared yourself at the city gate, they should have taken you in. That's one of the sins of the Pharisees. They had become a lot like the Romans. They were greedy and they were hard-hearted towards the sick and towards the poor. They had come to believe that sickness and poverty were a result of sin and that prosperity was a result of righteousness. So they rejected the disabled and the poor instead of caring for them as they were called to do. So part of our thing is if we are looking for opportunities to serve, if we are thinking about being on mission, it is one of these things that is to care for the poor. So we'll continue moving on. We have three Marys. We have Mary Magdalene, Mary's sister of Lazarus, and then we have Jesus' mom, Mary. Mary is a common name. Its Hebrew root is Miriam. Miriam is Moses' sister, the one who put Moses in the basket and the one who saw Moses delivered to Pharaoh's daughter. It was Miriam who convinced Pharaoh's daughter to wet nurse, uh, to, to let um, uh, Moses' mom wet nurse Moses. Miriam is the savior of saviors. Miriam is the deliverer of deliverers. A slave Hebrew girl born to a slave Hebrew woman changed the world. Not with a sword, not with a speech, not with a protest. Miriam changed the world with a woven basket, a blanket, and a conversation. I dare each of us to do better. So John gives us a footnote that this Mary is the Mary who worshiped Jesus by pouring perfume on Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. So you guys have your Bible? If you look, you would actually have to go forward to John chapter 12 to read that story. This is one of the things that gives us the date for this gospel because John is assuming that you already know this story which would tell us that it was written after the other Gospels had already written. He's assuming that that you have already read this story in Matthew or Mark. So he says, he gives us that footnote, but he doesn't record it until John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
So just a fun note there. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. So the sisters sent word, this is verse 3, said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Mary and Martha knew Jesus loves them. And Jesus loves Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is a common name. And Jesus uses the name Lazarus in his parable about the rich man in hell. We read um, over in chapter Luke last week. Or I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. But Lazarus is the Hebrew name Eleazar. It means whom God helps. Whom God helps. This is a family of believers. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are all believers. That, that is not a prerequisite for healing, by the way. It is just a detail of the story. Think about the centurion's servant who never met Jesus and was still healed, or Jairus' daughter never met Jesus and was still healed. This family, however, are believers. They know Christ, and Christ knows them. Their intimacy with Jesus, their familiarity with Jesus, is to be copied. You should know Jesus, and Jesus should know you in the same way. We should worship the way that Mary worships. The disciples are there also. They are traveling with Jesus and are witnesses to this miracle. But Mary and Martha and Lazarus all know that Jesus loves them. I want you to write this in stone. Write it in the margins of your Bible. Write it on your mirror. Write it in your heart. These words should always be in your mind. Jesus loves you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. If there's one thing that you can stand and proclaim at any time to anyone, anywhere, that's not arrogant, that's not saying too much, you can say, I know Jesus loves me. I know it. I know I am loved. The whole world might be against me. Everything might be going south. I know Jesus loves me. Write it down. Put it down somewhere. Stand confidently on that. Write it on the bottom of your shoes. Do whatever it takes. We can read this in um, 1 John 3, 1. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. He calls us his children, and that is what we are. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We wouldn't know what love was without it. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love for us in this. He demonstrates it. He proves it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know, does God love me? Yeah. He loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to the cross for you. This is in Romans 5, 1 through 11. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, it's almost like he was Superman. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person might, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were still sinners, before we even knew better, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. There it is. It is by love. Because of his great love. So grab it. Proclaim it. Say it boldly. I know I am loved. I know I am not alone. I know my Redeemer lives. You can say that with full confidence. It is not arrogant or childish or silly. They are simple facts. You are loved by Jesus. Our next point is about prayer. Mary and Martha were not telling Jesus something that he did not know. He sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Jesus knew Lazarus was sick. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. We pray anyway. Mary and Martha prayed anyway. If you are wondering if you should pray, the answer is yes. Praying is good for you. You get to process your day. You get to shift your mind and your focus to caring for others. I keep a list of people to pray for. It's a long list. In my prayer time, it keeps getting longer and longer, not shorter. If I know about it, I pray about it. That's why I was reading this book by, uh, by Francis Chan. And he, for him, he says, you know, to even think about volunteering for their ministry, you need to spend at least an hour a day in prayer. And I thought, man, that seems like an awful long time. And then I started timing myself. And I was like, oh, okay, well... Because here's the thing is that the more the people are in your mind, the more things that you know about, the more things that are going on in the world, the more you offer those things up in prayer. And Jesus says, pray. Ephesians 6.18 say, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Praying brings you closer to the listener. Most of us know this, but one of the best parts of our day is when we get to hear from folks about what is going on, what happened at school, what happened at work, how friends and family and coworkers are doing. If nothing else, we enjoy the time. We enjoy hearing their voices. It's time together. It's not about judgment or blame or gossip or fixing things. Very rarely can we or should we do anything. We just listen. The thing about prayer, though, is that God is a safe place also, a safe place to tell your secrets to, things you would not say to anyone else. 
The thing is that most of us have been betrayed before. We've lost trust before. But God doesn't do that. So if there's one thing that should renew your fervor for prayer, it is this passage right here. I pray out loud. It helps keep me focused and to have my my thoughts be clear. But there are no hard and fast rules. God made this beautiful bouquet of humanity. He loves his children, each one, and just wants to hear from you and to have some time with you. So if your question is, does prayer matter? The answer is yes, it matters. The proof is right here in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In verse 4, we get an answer to their prayer. We also get the purpose of this miracle. This sickness is going to serve a purpose. God will display his glory, and Jesus will be glorified in this miracle. Now, there's different kinds of sickness, and we can't skip over that. Sometimes people just get sick. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes you just get sick. Sometimes sickness is caused by sin. Sometimes sickness is caused by abusing the Lord's table. And then there's this, sickness that serves a purpose that God will use to display his glory. In our weakness, in our sickness, in our tragedy, God can be magnified. He can be glorified. God gets closer to us. That is, this sickness has a purpose. This miracle is the seventh miracle that John records in his gospel. The first one is the water into wine. The second one is the healing of the nobleman's son. The third one is restoring the paralyzed man. Four is feeding the 5,000. Five is walking on water. Six, giving sight to the blind man. And then this one, raising Lazarus from the dead. This is not, however, the first resurrection. There are two others. Mark 5, 21 through 43, Jesus heals the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and raises Jairus' daughter. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, Jesus raises a widow's son. Remember, that's the one where the funeral procession is going by and Jesus reaches up and, and raises the young boy. He says, he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And again, the point of this miracle is that God would be glorified, that Jesus would be glorified. If we turn back to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, we hear very similar language. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened, why? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then he gives something very similar to an answer he gives uh, uh, down the road here. He says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You might underline that verse. Like I said, he says something very similar here in just a couple of verses. So God does not cause the tragedy. He does not cause the sickness. He does not cause wickedness. He does not cause sin. But he does use those things for his glory. 
Most of us remember this passage from Genesis chapter 50. It says exactly this. It's uh, Joseph when he's talking to his brothers. So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Remember, they had sold him into slavery. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God, your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be, a, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What you intended for evil... God will use for good. Jesus will be glorified. So in 2022, what can I proclaim? What can I say when storms come up, when the bills pile up, when my loved ones are sick or injured? We can proclaim God's love and we can proclaim God's glory. Jesus repeats this. He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may, glorified through, may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. It's kind of an odd flip, isn't it? He loved him, so he stayed two more days. That word love, by the way, is phileo, not agape. Agape is, a, is divine love. Phileo is person to person. It's friendship. Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha as friends. It's deep. It's big and it's deep. Jesus is fully man. He is a perfect man, but a man. He has relationships. I was thinking about Abraham. He was called a friend of God. David, a man after God's heart was wondering, it just popped into my head when I was, when I was writing this, what do you suppose that, that Jesus talked to Moses and Elijah about when they went on the Mount of Transfiguration? Why did they have to have a meeting? Why, why was there a church board meeting on the top of this mountain in the middle of the ministry? I have no idea. I have no idea what was said. But it demonstrates this idea that Jesus has relationships. He has friends. He has people that he goes and he talks to. I don't know what they talked about. I don't know why they needed to meet. I don't know what work had to be done or what problem had to be solved or what was so urgent that a face-to-face with the Messiah was necessary. I don't have answers, but clearly there are inner machinations to the kingdom of God that extend beyond our world. Even thinking about Jacob's ladder when he saw the, the angels ascending and descending. Here we see that Jesus has friends. He has a mom, an earthly dad, a heavenly dad. He has brothers and sisters, and he has friends. And he cares for his friends. He cares for Lazarus. If we flipped forward uh, just a few verses down to 33 through 36, listen to Jesus' reaction. When Jesus saw her weeping 
and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's Jesus' reaction to his friends hurting. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Wow. That is the heart of Jesus. His friend was sick and died. And Jesus was deeply moved, troubled in spirit, and wept. Yeah, me too. See, most of our problems, they don't come from material needs or wants. They come from our relationships. Miscommunication, unfulfilled needs, injuries, insults, burdens, unkind words, threats to our safety, threats to our freedom, desire for acceptance, desire for love, desire for affection. We are social creatures. And our society is our greatest strength and our source of pain, isn't it? Spouses and family and co-workers and customers and friends. There are two entire sections at Barnes & Noble dedicated to dealing with your internal desires, discipline, and relationships. That's how important it is in our society. Which makes this juxtaposition when Jesus stays two more days instead of immediately going. It makes you go, man, what, what happened there? Clearly Jesus cares. Clearly Lazarus is Jesus' friend. Why didn't he rush back? Because Jesus sticks to the plan. He waits two more days, then heads back to Judea, back to Bethany. Jesus will not disobey God, even in the face of his friend's illness. Jesus is on mission in Israel, and people are coming to the faith. He stays there and finishes what he started. Jesus is obedient to the plan. The next section draws this out, about the plan, about timing. I said it, it parallels what we read back in chapter 9. It says, This sickness will not end death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Jesus, Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. The disciples are observant, aren't they? They remember that twice now the Jews in Jerusalem have picked up stones to kill Jesus. There was also a little incident in Nazareth with a, cliff, with a cliff. If you want to go to Luke chapter 4, verse 24 through 30, it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. John 8, 58 through 59 is the first time they tried to stone him. John 10, 31 through 33 is the second time they tried to stone him. And this miracle, the raising of Lazarus, when we get into the next few weeks, is the trigger point for the crucifixion. It's going to cause the Sanhedrin to meet, and they're going to resolve to kill Jesus. It is the final blow. But this sets in motion the plan to bring Jesus to the cross. 
So the disciples are, have every reason to say, um, sir, <laughs> I don't think that's the best plan. I don't think going back to, uh, to, to, to Bethany is a good idea. I think we, we're fine. But no, it is part of the plan. It is finally time. So it was probably relief, right? The first time when, when the, the news came and Jesus didn't run right off and head back to Bethany. They were probably like, Phew. Because Jesus had just escaped that attempted stoning in chapter 10. But then two days later, he announces they are going back. The disciples object. It's a bad idea. The authorities want you dead. Don't go that way. And Jesus answers with a proverb. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. As when a person walks at night, they stumble, for they have no light. If we were to go back to chapter 9, he says, you work when it's day, you don't work when it's night. No one can shorten or lengthen the day. It is day when it is day. It is night when it is night. Any of you guys ever changed that? Anyone? Anyone ever been able to add an hour to a day or add an hour to a night? There's sometimes when we would like to, right? We're like, man, if I could get just one more hour of daylight, I could get this done. Or if I could just get one more hour before it's bedtime. We have no control over it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that only God has sovereignty over night and day. No one, good or evil, has control over night and day. God tells the sun to rise and when to set. Jesus says, right now, it is daylight and there is nothing anyone can do about it. Pretty soon it will be dark and there is nothing anyone can do about it. It should give us some urgency to our mission work. We should understand that it won't always be day, and it won't always be night, and that we don't have a say. So while it is day, we should work. We should walk, and we should work. And while it is night, we've got to Make sure that our lamps were filled during the daytime. We've got to make sure that our wick is trimmed. We've got to make sure that we can persevere through the nighttime. We should also understand that God has ordained the times. He set them. So there are some things that we can stand on, we can be confident of. We can say it loud and proud. We can say, God loves you. Jesus loves you. We can say it ten times in the mirror every morning. I know I am loved. I know I am not alone. I know my Redeemer lives. And now is our daylight. Look around. We sit here in freedom and comfort. We have easy access to the Bible. We can gather together without fear. Night is coming. But while it is daylight, God has ordained this time for us to work, and nothing can stop us. Everything that we're afraid of in proclaiming the gospel we just need to cast it aside because God has ordained this time for us to work and nothing can stop us. Now, it is not daylight for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. They are in a season of darkness. They are pressed and crushed and bruised and beaten and persecuted. But it won't always be dark. Day is coming. And when it is day, we need to work and we need to make sure we have a good stock of oil. Because God says night is coming when no one can work. Instead, we will have to keep our lamps full and our wicks trimmed. We will need to wait in the dark for our Lord's return. 
for the sun to rise again. Work now, be ready for the night. After this, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's a funny piece. You have to imagine the disciples after the resurrection sitting around the fire talking about this one. You remember when we were up in Israel and things were going so good and then Jesus said, we got to go back down to Judah and he says, Lazarus is sleeping and we all figured, man, he was sick. He crashed out. He's sleeping off his sickness. Maybe his fever is broken, but nope, he's dead. And Jesus says, we're going to go wake up Lazarus. That's what he said. He said, we're going to go wake up Lazarus. Well, we'd seen him do it a couple other times. For once we finally got it. And he says that him not being there was good. It was for our sake that him not being there, not curing Lazarus, would help our faith. And then Thomas, he gets to play the role of Dennis Leary in this one, the cynic. Yeah, let's go so we can all die. But they won't all die, will they? Lazarus will be raised and God will be glorified. Believers will be strengthened through this tragedy. Jesus says this bad thing, this sickness resulting in death, will end in glory that God will be glorified, that Jesus will be glorified. So here are our takeaways. We started off by reviewing our foundation, what we believe, why we believe, and where we get it from. We got it right here on this piece of paper. Then we gave ourselves a confidence, something that we can say to ourselves in the mirror or shout in the streets. I know I am loved. I am know I am not alone. I know my Redeemer lives. Then we learned we need to work while it is daylight. There is day and there is night. And God is sovereign over the day and the night. Day is for walking and working, gathering oil and filling the lamps. Night is for stumbling, persevering, enduring, keeping the lamp, the lamp trimmed and lit. And it is day for us now. So let's work with the urgency because night is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have this week. We're back to school, back to work, back to a new year. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for our time that we have together. We're thankful for the light, the light to guide our hands, the light to guide our feet. Please help us to draw closer to you. Please help us to put you first in every step. Lord, I lift up our children to you as they head back to school. I lift, just ask that they be blessed, that their hearts and their ears are guarded, that their eyes are protected, that you keep them safe, that you keep them close, that you give us the, the words and the tools and the provision that we need to raise them up as you would, that we would love them the way that you would. Father, we just offer this week up to you that through all of its ups and its downs, through all of its trials, through all of its tribulations, that at the end you would be glorified. That through all of the good things and the bad things, through the breakfasts and the lunches and the, the dinners and the, 
the TV and the, the computer that somewhere at the end that you would be glorified, that someone would hear you, would see you, would know you, and would draw closer to you. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.